1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 19th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I am so happy to be joined on this episode by Olivia Wilde, an actress who I think is just terrific and who's also pretty terrific as a person. Her evolution personally and professionally has been fascinating to watch, and it has reached a milestone in a sense with her latest movie, Meadowland, which she both stars in and produced. The film, which marks the directorial debut of Reed Murano, a terrific cinematographer, tells the story of a mother grieving over the disappearance of her young child. It premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in April, was released by Cinedigm, and is now available on VOD. And I highly encourage you to check it out because both Murano and Wild are going to be forces to be reckoned with in this industry for a long time to come. But before we get to the conversation with Olivia, let's just recap what's happened in the world of awards since our last episode. The big news was that the Broadcast Film Critics Association and Broadcast Television Journalists Association, both of which I belong to, announced the nominations for the first ever Joint Film and TV Critics' Choice Awards, which will take place in January. And somewhat surprisingly, the leader by far in terms of nominations on the film side was Mad Max Fury Road, a movie that came out in May is certainly not your typical awards type of movie, and yet proved to be the heavy favorite of the critics with 13 nominations for more than any other film. And speaking of unconventional awards type movies, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, probably the most anticipated movie of the year for most people, and one that is sure to shatter box office records when it opens nationwide on Friday, had its world premiere on Monday night in Hollywood and couldn't have gone over much better. People were just enamored with J.J. J. Abrams' take on the franchise, and almost immediately after it let out, there began to be rumblings from Academy members that this might be the first of the Star Wars movies since the original 1977 installment to land above-the-line nominations, meaning not only for visual effects and score and things like that, but also perhaps for best picture and or best director. But let's get back to Olivia Wilde, who is somebody most of us first discovered on the small screen, whether in the OC or on House, and who then transitioned to the big screen in an indie, Alpha Dog, that helped raise the profile of her and a lot of other young actors, and who then became a blockbuster movie star. She was the female lead in Tron Legacy, Cowboys and Aliens, and others, but decided, interestingly enough, to focus mostly on indie films, and she has done Great work in several of them, going back to Butter, then Drinking Buddies, certainly Her, which was nominated for Best Picture, and now, most recently, Meadowland. She'll soon be heading back to the small screen on HBO's highly anticipated Martin Scorsese project, Vinyl, which is sure to raise her profile even further, But for now, I think she is still one of the most underrated and interesting actresses out there. It's easy to get caught up in talk of her beauty and style and all the other things that people focus on. But in my opinion, she is a really terrific actress and a really smart person with a strong feminist bent that I think could really shake things up in this industry. And I think that has already begun in the form of Meadowland. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Olivia Wilde. Thank you for doing this, first of all.
0: So happy to be here.
1: This movie, it seems like, I think all of them, I'm sure, mean a lot to you, but this one particularly, and most of this conversation is going to be about that, but I want to just go back as we do in every episode of this and kind of retrace how we got here, and so I guess, first of all, it's kind of amazing that you became a Hollywood actress and actress in the first place, considering... Your family background mm-hmm. and your geographic background, mm-hmm. and all of this is maybe you can kind of explain how you.
0: Isn't be- that the funny thing about <laughs> this business, though? You never know where people have come from. Their families right. are, are, you know, come from all sorts of backgrounds, and it's it's always so fascinating to me. You talk to people whose parents are, you know, uh, construction workers or teachers or flight attendants or journalists, or you know, and it it it's one of those businesses that really. Uh, does offer opportunity to anyone with the skill, the willpower, and the luck. Right. And I just think that's such a cool thing about, about our business. But, um,
1: right, who's from LA? Nobody's from LA. Right, nobody's from LA. <laughs>
0: and, like, the people who are actually like from Hollywood families are few right. and far between. There aren't that many people who are, sure. you know, following that legacy. But I, yeah, my parents are journalists. My grandparents were journalists. My aunts and uncles are journalists. Um, and I think in many ways, uh, they're all storytellers, and I was just finding my own way of becoming a storyteller. But I knew from a really young age that this is what I wanted to do, and they were always very supportive. So it, it for me, felt like um, a very logical trajectory, even though I knew nothing about the way this business worked. I had no exposure to Hollywood, to... California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My mom's from San Francisco, but Southern California was a complete mystery to me. I, when I moved there, I would take pictures of palm trees <laughs> at every opportunity, and any business that had the word surf in the name of the business, for me, was just like so titillating. I was like, <laughs> this is incredible. This is a car wash called like, Surf Wash. This is the paradise land.
1: And this is because you spent a lot of your time in Ireland?
0: Yeah, my dad's Irish. Okay. And uh, we grew up, I was born in New York City, moved to DC when I was four, and grew up in Georgetown, and spent um, any time we kind of weren't in school in Ireland. And I really connected to my roots there, and actually went to acting school in Dublin at the Gaiety, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic place. Yeah. But I, my parents did a really good job of allowing us to feel connected to our. Uh, you know, our roots in both countries. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm a parent, I think about how that's so important to make your kids feel that, you know, they have family, uh, and they they have family in, in, in different places, mm-hmm. and they have to value that, and it's what makes you different and interesting, you know?
1: Oddly, it was somebody in Ireland who kind of motivated you to go to L.A., right? Because you were off to college. Yeah, that was to go to
0: Bard College in upstate New York.
1: Right. So, how did that um, get
0: uh, put off? Well, it was actually, I had, yeah, I had I went to the Gaiety School of Acting mm-hmm. in Dublin, and I had a really great teacher there named Patrick Sutton, who is still the head of that school, mm-hmm. and, uh you know, he was very supportive. The big alumni from that school had been Colin Farrell, mm-hmm. and it was, like, really exciting, because Colin Farrell had just broken through, I, I can't remember what his first film was, but it was like, Collins in a movie, <laughs> right. uh, so that was a nice inspiration. Right. And I thought, you know, I really wanna do that, I wanna head out there, I wanna to try to make films. And uh, both Patrick and a teacher I had at Andover actually, a teacher named Kevin Heelan, who's an incredible theater teacher and playwright, he also advised me, go to LA first, see that world, and make sure that's what you want before you really make it your Definitely. your major and your profession. Yeah. So yeah, I I went to LA for a year off just to kind of take a peek. And kind of never left. Yeah, I worked in casting. Right. And I thought I'll just, I'll kind of, I'll do some auditions just to sort of get some experience, um, cut my teeth a little bit. But I, I didn't think this is where it would all, that is where it would all begin. I thought, you know, I better learn about the audition process. And then I just wanted to be on a set to learn about how the cameras worked. You know, I wanted to know how the film was loaded, which now I realize is this antiquated (laughs) system. You know, you just you think about how it's evolved so quickly that actors now, young actors, probably have no idea where this terminology comes from. Like, check the gate. Right. What gate? Right. Like, there's no stopping to reload. (laughs) I think about this all the time. It's
1: funny. It is.
0: It it is. uh, It's a rapidly evolving industry and technology.
1: I am surprised that having been in casting and seen up close how brutal and often unfair and, sure. and horrible it can be that you were not deterred from going into it yourself.
0: Well, I had a really great boss. My boss was this uh, casting director named Mally Finn who's mm-hmm. no longer with us, but she was one of the best. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because I was in her office that I wasn't completely you know, horrified mm-hmm. by the belly of the beast because <laughs> she approached the casting pro- process with such high standards and integrity and uh, so I got to see which actors were really kind of, stick, you know, rising above the herd. And that was very inspiring. I realized what you needed in order to succeed in such a competitive business was to really harness your individuality and, and invest in, you know, your uniqueness. and to really work hard, to study hard, and and to be very prepared and to make choices. like These were all lessons I learned in that office, even though I'd been training in theater Mm -hmm. since I was a kid. So I'm a big believer in working as an intern or a low-level assistant in the industry for whatever position, no matter what position you want eventually, just get some insight, valuable insight, into how this business works and why, some people are able to um, succeed and and others fade back into obscurity because it can easily uh, kind of trap you and uh, rather than allow you to harness your individuality, kind of encourage this kind of homogenized Um, Identity. I I think that happens to a lot of people, but because of my boss and that office, I learned that the goal was to just work extremely hard and to just focus on why I, you know, what was different about me, I guess. And you were eighteen. I was eighteen. I worked there first. I did a summer internship there when I was sixteen, just for a couple weeks because I, I'd heard about about that, and then I came back to work there when I was eighteen. Wow.
1: So. Correct me if any of this is wrong, but basically the trajectory was you had a success with your first pilot. Yeah,
0: it's so weird. I didn't even know. The pilot season (laughs) was so foreign to me. And then the idea of a pilot getting picked up, I didn't realize how rare that was. I know the system has now changed a lot since, you know, that was like 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. I, at the time, had no idea that it was rare for your pilot to get cast in a pilot, for the pilot to get picked up, and then for it to actually go to series. <laughs> I
1: know, it's, not, it's like crazy to yeah. think about, right? Yeah, so for better or worse, my yeah. first one did, Yeah.
0: And, and we got canceled after like six, I think, six or eight.
1: But it wasn't that devastating because you didn't have any, or, or sure, was it?
0: exactly. You know, it, it wasn't devastating, yeah. uh, but it certainly was a wake-up call. I, you know, I always say like I believe in early failure. Mm-hmm. I think it's good for everyone. Yeah. Um, once we were canceled, the phone stopped ringing immediately. I had done this massive PR push. I had been part of this machine that was promoting this show. It was a Jerry mm-hmm. Bruckheimer show. Mm-hmm. It was on Fox. You know, we were doing those weird Fox promos where you're standing in front of, like, a ball of fire spinning, yeah. the camera spinning around you. <laughs> I don't know if they still the do that. The whole machine, yeah. But I I was in the middle of it. You know, it was yeah. like a, a star is born mm-hmm. montage. Mm-hmm. You know, my hair got blonder. my Everything about me seemed to suddenly... Um, transformed to fit in you know I was in LA I, I was such an outsider I looked I didn't look like I belonged in LA you know I I, I would walk around a lot of like brown corduroy <laughs> um and then suddenly I was put into the machine so, so there
1: they did that to you you didn't do it because you felt pressured to I'd say it was a combination yeah.
0: you know no one forced me yeah. no one dragged me by the by the hair right. uh but yeah no there was certainly like you know, we want your hair. We, they did actually, t- you know, take me to a salon and say, like, it needs to be this shade of blonde. Wow. And uh, you're going to do um, this press, and you should wear these types of clothes. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of what we're going for and the vibe of what we're selling. And, you know, I've always been a, a team player and, uh, you know, a good soldier. Yeah. <laughs> and if someone asks me to be a part of the team and help fight for that team, I'll do it. Right. And I think a lot of young actors confuse loyalty to those giving you the opportunity with a complete loss of your yeah. sense of self. Yeah. So while I really value that opportunity, that experience, I got to hang out with Ron Silver, yeah. you know, learn about the right. Actors Studio, right. and that was really cool. Uh, I, but but I, I did find myself suddenly in this kind of foreign identity. Um, and then it was canceled, and all of that suddenly quieted wow. down, and that was, an opportunity to realize what's real, what's not real in this business. So from the point where that first show, Skin, was mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. from the point it was canceled, I had an idea of where my footing was mm-hmm. in this business, what what I could trust and what mm-hmm. was fake. And I think that was a very important part of the whole, you know, development.
1: So when the when the O C came along, which wouldn't have been how long after that? That was a
0: couple of years after. So the O C maybe not a couple years, maybe a year or so. Because um, that was
1: more or less, like, overlapping with Alpha Dog, right? I mean, not... Yeah, I
0: shot Alpha Dog on the weekends when I was on the OC. Oh, my
1: God. So, in a way, was that a identity crisis again? Because, sure, you know- yeah.
0: Well, you know, uh, Josh Schwartz, who created the OC, mm-hmm. he asked if I would come on board and do, like, three episodes. And I said, well, oh, what's it going to be? He said, your character is going to run a music venue, and you're going to get to meet a lot of really cool bands in real life. And I was like, yeah, 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 it's great. <laughs> I had no idea it was a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. I was so out of the loop. I didn't realize the machine that was that show. Mm-hmm. I ended up staying for one season, uh, and then I did, I had a great time, with such lovely people. But you know, I kind of sensed it wasn't, it wasn't where I wanted to be mm-hmm. f- any longer, and I was doing Alpha Dog on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And once I was on set, of Alpha Dog with these incredible actors yeah. and you know an amazing director in Nic I really really love Nick. Yeah. He uh, was here last year
1: with his mother. Oh, that's Jenna right. Rollins. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. Jenna. Yeah.
0: Well, once I was, you know, I remember being on set doing a particularly intense scene with Ben Foster and I felt that high that actors get when you reach a really kind of truthful place in a scene. It's like this this hum you feel you feel that this i don't know how to describe it it is just a high i mm-hmm. think and that's what we're all chasing and that's what the good projects allow you to have but i knew the second i felt it that i had to you know leave the oc and chase that feeling so it didn't happen immediately but i i it was another step along the way of figuring out what was actually, what what kind of career was actually true to myself. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess then, again, it's it's interesting how it's kind of TV and film have jumped back and forth here because with House, when that came along, that sort of interrupted that indie path that you were headed on again. Yeah. Well, you know,
0: it's funny. There was a few steps before. I did um, some indies, you know, some that I I still really love. Like I did this one with Patrick Fugit called Bickford Schmick. Bickford Schmeckler's cool ideas. <laughs> this film is so wacky. Right. Directed by a guy named Scott Liu. Okay, I'm gonna check I it's
1: gotta write the stuff. Awesome. You
0: know, yeah. Matt Lillard's in it, oh, yeah. um, John Cho. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. And our director, Scott, was suffering from ALS while he was shooting the film mm. and would direct most of it from his wheelchair. Wow. And it was so moving to be able to uh, you know, bring his dream into reality but it was so funny because it was kind of a physical comedy and there were times when scott at the point you know he was he was his sickness was kind of rapidly evolving Mm -hmm. and he uh he would laugh what an amazing guy he would laugh because he'd want to show me what to do with my body you know i want you to flail like this and he'd be like no can't move my arms anymore if (laughs) i could i would show you what to do and what i mean it was this incredibly moving experience um it's what a darkly funny and yeah, awesome guy. Yeah. So that kind of experience I had. Uh, I did um, a, a short, another short-lived series for NBC called The Black Donnellys. Oh, yeah. That Paul Haggis directed. Yeah. And amazing cast. And that's, you know, like people like Kevin Corrigan and Max Casella mm-hmm. were on that show. Jonathan Tucker, you know, and uh, Keith Nobbs, real New York yeah. actors. And w- that allowed me to work back in New York. And I thought, oh my God, I'm home, yeah. I'm home. And when that got canceled, I said, I'm not going back to LA, and I did a play off-Broadway called Beauty on the Vine, mm-hmm. written by a guy named Zach Berkman, and it was really fun, and it was a, a political thriller, and I got to play three different characters. And again, I felt this, this satisfied feeling. Thing, yeah. But off-Broadway is a good place not to make money. <laughs> um was <laughs> no, you know, yeah. 300 bucks a week, wow. doing eight or nine shows a week, um, exhausted. And uh, at one point, my voice completely went up. I, I could scream and not a peep would come out. Oh. And the stress was really overwhelming. And yes. at that point, my agent said, hey, they're adding some characters to House. And I thought, oh, House is a great show. They uh-huh. write really well for women on that uh-huh. show. And he said, yeah, me Hugh Laurie. And I was like, oh my God, Hugh Laurie? You get to act with Hugh Laurie? So I went... To LA, thinking I would do a couple episodes of House, and then they asked me to stay.
1: And how many years did that end up being?
0: I stayed for four years.
1: And during during that time, though, do you feel that the big films that came along, the Trons, the Cowboys and Cowboys and Aliens, that was because of the added exposure, obviously? Sure. Yeah. House. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You were well, House
0: was a gift. Yeah. It was. Yeah, it put me on the radar of for directors that probably never would have known who I was, and I it. um... It was a massive hit, and I had been a part of all these things that, you know, well, The O.C. was a massive hit, that was the only other like successful yeah. thing I'd been a part of, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't accustomed to being a part of anything successful, right. so <laughs> House was this think, yeah, unfamiliar serve. territory. Yeah. But I loved it, I loved playing a character who was defined by her intelligence and wit, and it was such a fun run, and uh, you know, I owe my career in in many ways to those producers, so. Mm. It was great because they also were very accommodating when I had to go and do Tron and Cowboys and Aliens mm-hmm. and different things that mm-hmm. came in between because, you know, it meant that I would miss certain episodes or, right. um, you know, they just knew. They, they believed in me and they could have easily squashed those opportunities and they didn't.
1: So now you were not only an indie actress in film, but you are now in the making of being a movie star. And I wondered for you what that was like because while those movies were huge and made a lot of money and, you know, probably were different than anything you'd done before, I also remember from previous conversations that we've had at different interview opportunities that you kind of bristled against the idea that of being part of this kind of the corporate burden of it, I think was the sure. way you phrased it. And also the fact that I think some of them the, you you know, the persona was this this very confident, cold kind of woman that was not, it's not who you are. No. So is it correct to say that while those were nice opportunities for exposure, they were not where you felt very at home?
0: You know, I did, it's funny because I, I, I value them still. Like Tron, you know, getting to play, getting to create a character who was so different than what we were originally handed, uh, you know, that character ended up... I wanted to turn her into this kind of androgynous Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. Um, Disney didn't want her to be androgynous. <laughs> <for> <laughs> obvious reasons. But they really allowed me to, you know, right. take down the, the foam rubber boobs about four inches, <laughs> cut her hair. Um, you know, Joe Kaczynski, who directed Tron, was really collaborative. I sat in on all the rewrite meetings. I worked really hard to turn her into this kind of childlike character. So I don't see that one as cold. I see that one as as a... I'm really proud of that character. And I loved working with Bridges. I mean, Jeff Bridges is one of the best. I've had the opportunity to work with so many of my heroes. And that's why I feel I've learned to not be too concerned with the result of any project. Because the process is, you know, where you you learn everything valuable. Um, But... Jeff and I used to sit on set of Tron, splitting an iPod, you know, with one earbud each, <laughs> listening to Alan Watts lectures. And I was like, this is <laughs> this the is ultimate. <laughs> the dude. That is um, funny. So that movie, but yes, I see what you're saying completely. Like, the, 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 being a part of the. Studio machine mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily allow for a lot of self-expression, and although they were collaborative up to a point in letting me create that character, that you know there was a limit to that because right. it's fitting into a broad, uh, you know, a, a greater studio plan. Um, but I I think that was all part of the education I needed to get to this point, particularly as a producer, because yeah. I think now that I've been on both indie sets and large sets. You know I've learned a tremendous amount about problem solving Um, so I think it it was all part of the plan but I was lucky that you know I never cared that much when a movie didn't like Cowboys and Aliens Cowboys and Aliens was one of the most fun experiences of my life I got to live in Santa Fe work with the most hilarious and brilliant people I thought Jon Favreau was one of the most insightful um, actor-friendly directors I'd ever worked with and you know, just an amazing opportunity, so uh you know, riding a horse through the desert every day <laughs> was a dream, and that film definitely did not do well, and yet I would do it again right, right. now. Um, yeah, and then you know, from that point on, things kind of kind of shifted yeah, it was like a turning it was sort point of a out. turning point, you know for me, and I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but for me, drinking buddies right was a major turning point for me personally. And that year also marked the year I did Rush and Her. Uh, unbelievable.
1: Yes. But even before that, I mean, Butter. I'm so happy that you've seen Butter. I Absolutely. and, and I still love Butter. But before even Butter, when, when you had to decide what direction you wanted to take things, I kind of remember, and maybe you can share this, that I think you went and saw Carrie Fisher and you talked to Julie Christie. And the fact that you have anything to do with them is interesting. What, you know, they're very interesting characters. Yes. So maybe you can share what you took from them in terms of I've always
0: been good at identifying mentors and asking a lot of questions and Mm -hmm. if I you know if there is a fascinating um, person within 20 feet they're going to be harassed (laughs) by me and I uh, yeah I mean Carrie Fisher I was really I loved wishful drinking and I just loved that she found humor in in pain Mm -hmm. and you know I remember when I was a kid every time I would you know get bullied at school or or have a mean teacher my mom would say it's all material it's all material <laughs> and I thought that was a great attitude and I think Carrie Fisher kind of continued to inspire me in that way to see it all as just part of the the funny because who, weird was, who was
1: part of the machine more than she was exactly Laura, right? exactly
0: so. so seeing how she came out of that right. being able to laugh at being uh, you know 19 years old in the biggest film of all time mm-hmm. and You know, in her book, she has a very funny part where she says that every time she looks in the mirror, she has to send Lucas a dollar. (laughs) She's the best. That's great. But I, I, yes, I was so inspired by her general attitude uh, towards the machine. And then Julie Christie, yeah, I had had a chance to harass her at another point. And she said something to me about how she felt she she kind of learned on the job, which is certainly how I feel. I mean, I had my theater training prior to my professional Mm -hmm. life, but I feel that I have, I spent the first 10 years of my career figuring it out and I'm still figuring it out. It's not that that ended, but yeah, I was inspired by her kind of very kind of honest uh, assessment of her own career. And, and also she's just incredibly smart and self deprecating. And I was inspired by, you know, all every actor I have had the chance to work with or meet has, has inspired me in some way. And, I feel the thing I'm reminded of over and over again is that we're just artists. We're just playing. This is just, you know, this is just fun, and it should be that way. But so I felt uh, after house that I was ready for kind of a a shift. Um, And, you know, they were very kind to let me out of house early so that I could pursue that. And, yeah, then it kind of, it all... It all kind of uh happened organically, I, but I, yeah, I, I keep coming back to drinking buddies because it gave me a certain amount of confidence, like I remember i I finished drinking buddies and went st- oh no, I finished her and went straight into drinking buddies, and Rush had been earlier that year
1: so you've already in one year had Ron Howard, spike Jones, and now you're going to do Lomberglomberg yeah which probably was very different from the other couldn't have been more different from the other two. couldn't have
0: been more different yeah. um and and yeah but i mean all of them just you know raising my standards time and time again and right. making it making it all more interesting and making it harder to take something i didn't believe in because i just kept experiencing these these that actor high At LuckyLandSlots.com, available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: So going back, like I think, a year or two before even that, those three, yeah. was was butter. Which is just um, not to. It's not a movie. A lot of people got a chance to see. No. Didn't get a great wide release, but no, but I for love you it. and just to as I remember, it was sort of this complicated. Uh, tattooed pierced like almost goth stripper that you were playing.
0: Yeah and I wore those tattoos all around Shreveport, Louisiana when we weren't filming. (laughs) And they thought I was like this this new menace to society.
1: (laughs) Well with that though, was that sort of a statement like, all right, I'm 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 back on the indie track because that was a very indie Uh, movie. Yeah, yeah. And from then it's been primarily
0: indie. Yeah, I think I think you know, I was really excited. I had read that script a year before and felt so excited by it and I think at that point the role was someone else's and I, I was bummed and then I got a call you know that, that the opportunity was there if I could arrive the next day so I had no time to prepare but I was so thrilled to have the chance to be back in that world and I remember I shot it right before Cowboys and Aliens so it was this awesome um, kind of yin and yang yeah. To go from this tiny film and knowing that I was about to, you know, be shot out of a cannon right. into this ma- major operation. But the other thing that really inspired me about Butter was that it was uh, produced by Jan Garner. And I thought, how cool that she's producing her own really? content. And she was such a smart and gracious producer. And it really had an effect on me. And I think that brought me around to you know where I am today trying that for myself.
1: And so you you've done that on Drinking Buddies yeah. and you've done that now on Metal
0: Land. Yeah. Right.
1: So with Drinking Buddies though for people who have not yet seen it yes. I'm sure it's Please on see demand. It. Go see, it see it on see Netflix. It. Yeah another very small movie micro I think they say micro budget is the word. Mini um,
0: micro. Mini micro. So like whatever half of micro budget. Right.
1: And this is Joe Swanberg who's sort of like one of the gods of mumblecore and it is the one that I think if If anybody did not, prior to that, properly respect you as an actor, I think that that did it. And so, but because of the unique... um, Process. Process. Yeah. Okay.
0: The way Swanberg works is without a script. Um, He writes an outline that the actors never see. Mm -hmm. And it's a really inspiring and fun process. You have to completely surrender to it. And I had, you know... I've taken improv classes in my training. Mm-hmm. I've been a fan of professional improvisers. I have dabbled here and there. I um, i had never considered myself like a, an improviser. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how I would do. I didn't know how I would do without uh, a roadmap to follow. Once I have a script, I can improvise based on that script, but to have a blank canvas is the most terrifying thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and my fiance, Jason, Sadek is, is a very experienced yeah. improviser and had worked, you know, for years in second city in Chicago and then SNL and beyond. And he was the one who said, you got to work with Swanberg, That's going to be so much fun. Right. You should do that. Um, and we had improvised at UCB and, and a few places. And so his confidence in me actually really inspired me to go for it. And I arrived and Jake Johnson and I had about a week to prepare and our characters, uh, work in a brewery in mm-hmm. Chicago Swanberg also lives in Chicago shoots most of his films there if not all mm-hmm. and uh, the Chicago's a big part of that film and a big part of the experience for me because I love the film scene there um, and the beer scene yeah. it's pretty good <laughs> we shot yeah. in this incredible yeah. brewery and, and our characters were supposed to know a hell of a lot about beer so I had a very quick education <laughs> luckily I've been studying You've beer been trying- in my <laughs> off time for a few years Um, And it was uh, totally thrilling. And, you know, I think one of the reasons the movie is so good, and I'm really proud of Mm -hmm. it, so I feel like Mm -hmm. I can say it's good, um, is because we weren't focused on the result. It was all about the process of making it. And I think if we approached every film with that same attitude, we'd probably get a lot better results.
1: And also, I guess, I mean, there's maybe less of the BS that comes with making a lot of movies when there's no... Money, you know, money, <laughs> pretty much, right? <laughs>
0: There's no yeah. hair, you know, no hair and makeup. Yep. There's no trailers. Right. There's none of that, and I think, I think that allows for a team mentality that also fosters greater performances because you are pulling together to uh, to create something, and it makes you feel that you're back in the theater. It makes you feel that everyone is focused on this result, and I, I, I honestly think that the bigger the production is, the, bigger, the longer space there is between um, people and, and that you lose that, that kind of team spirit. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's the same reason I think actors should produce at least one time in their careers because once you've produced you have a different attitude about a day of work mm-hmm. because you're aware of the Herculean effort that went into right. making Everybody it possible because it is a fucking miracle <laughs> that any movie right. happens. Right. Um, I, remember I did a movie with Mark Duplass, who I think is fantastic, mm-hmm. and he has such a professional attitude on set. No matter how many hours you're making... Which movie was uh, We did The Lazarus Effect. Uh, yeah, um, That was my, my dip into the Blumhouse pool. <laughs> um, but I... Was so inspired. I I did that movie because I wanted to work with Mark. Yeah. And he has such a unique attitude on set. And I said, Why why are you this professional? Why are you so nice? Why do you stay so calm? And he said, Because I've produced and I've directed indies and I know how hard it is. And that's absolutely right. And I think after uh, the experience of producing Meadowland from the ground up, because Drinky Buddies, I was an EP, but I did not raise the money for it or go through the pre production challenges. So now after making Meadowland, I feel that I've been a better actor on set um, for exactly the reasons that Mark laid right. out.
1: So where did you first come across the material for Meadowland and what appealed to you about it? It's obviously not uplifting material, but it's very powerful and it's something that most people that, uh, in, in a different form go through at one point or another, you know, severe grief, something they lose somebody sure, or something happens. Yeah. How did you hear about it and what drew you to it?
0: I received the script in the traditional way. I yeah. got it from my agents, and I uh, I read it, and I loved it. And I called them, and I said, what is this Meadowland? What is that? I want that. It's incredible. And my agent, I will just never let him live this down. <laughs> Name
1: him, please. Uh, a- James Farrell, who's a wonderful,
0: <laughs> wonderful agent right. at WME. He's an right. Irish fellow, a lovely right. guy. And... A reader, a really wonderful, voracious reader right. and with great taste. So I knew when he sent it, it was gonna be something good. And I called him, I said, James, this is amazing. And he's like, yeah, now it's, um, it's, it's very competitive. <laughs> and I give him shit now because I'm like, that's the worst pep talk of right, all time. Right, right. But he was, he was preparing me uh, and it was actually the right move because it allowed me to fight for the role and understand that I would have to fight mm-hmm. for it. And I went and met with Reed Morano, yeah. whom I had been a fan of for a long time as a DP. Mm-hmm. You know, She shot Frozen River, Kill Your Darlings, um, Skeleton yeah. Twins more recently, okay. uh, Little Birds. And I thought, wow, that girl is going to direct a film? Mm-hmm. It's going to be cool. Um, and we met, and I said, I love this script. I want to tell you why I love it. And it happened to be the same reasons she loved it. And we talked about how Though stories of loss and grief are intense and, and can deter people from taking on that challenge, we both found something truly life-affirming mm-hmm. in this story and we were drawn to this character because we found her to be so brave and dangerous. And we talked a lot about the danger of grief, the, the independent journey of grief, uh, a process that's, that's so different for everyone. And we shared our stories. I mean, we sat there for three hours wow. and just connected. And you never met i never met. Wow. And I was like, man, I love your style. I love your take on this. I know you're getting hit up by every actress, right. and I'm so excited for <laughs> you. But can you just film me doing a couple scenes? And if you don't like what I have in mind, no hard feelings. She was like... Great. Came to my apartment. She filmed a couple scenes. We were so in sync. I was blown away by her, even in that setting. Wow. She just had great notes. Um, so then she gave me the role. I was really thrilled. And then I asked if I could be a producer. And, uh, you know, to her credit, she took me seriously. It wasn't like, sure, actor, you can be <laughs> a producer and we'll just never let you know what's no going time. on. She immediately said, great, you're a producer? Great. Okay, so on you know, our to-do list is like locations, casting, let's get this together, or let's find the money. Wow. And so I got this really incredible and very fast, uh, intense education in indie filmmaking and the production of a film that is not a very commercial one.
1: And you enjoyed the process.
0: I loved it. Yeah. I, I really enjoy fighting for something I believe in and I really feel very effective if I have that passion If I don't truly believe in something and have that passion, I'm not good at selling it. Mm -hmm. But I felt like I could walk into any room and talk about this incredible filmmaker and her vision. And I could do so without any hesitation. And I think, although it's difficult to get a film financed and produced, the people who have that money are looking for passion. Mm -hmm. Because where there's passion, there's hard work. And really, they want to invest in people who are going to work as hard as possible to bring a film to its to its best version of itself.
1: But didn't it sort of bother you that it was such a process when you have a yes. established actress, people know, people like a yes, a first-time filmmaker but somebody who obviously knows what he's doing? Absolutely. And do you think it was a gender issue? Do they have a harder time giving mo- women money?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. Mm-hmm. And I was I didn't go into it with that pessimism. Mm-hmm. I went in with only um optimism and excitement Mm -hmm. but when we kept getting responses that the film was just too risky and that um, you know that they felt that the material was too challenging and they would offer us pennies to make this film and I said but you can invest in a filmmaker if you give her the tools she needs Mm -hmm. you're gonna get something really special but she can't do that with cardboard she Mm -hmm. needs a camera you got to pay for this stuff and people just didn't see that value and I honestly think that there exists even if it is subconscious Mm -hmm. on many levels a stigma against women as directors the assumption is that they will not work as hard or that they will not um, be as easy to control Mm -hmm. I think it's truly the latter I think there's an assumption that men young male filmmakers are easily manipulated and can be you know abused into following whatever the financier or the studio you know, wants to happen. And I, I I know that's changing. I know there's a lot of goodwill behind this movement, but I think it is, unfortunately, it comes from institutionalized sexism and it's, it's not something that's just going to, change because we say we really care about female filmmakers. It takes, like, a, a real kind of work on behalf of society. We need to turn inward and say, like, why do we make these assumptions about women?
1: And also, a lot of times, change, is, change happens only when it's sort of uh, forced on people. And I yeah. think that what's happening now, I wonder what your take is on this, that I think it's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, I forget what mm-hmm. it is, but they've mm-hmm. now come into... Hollywood and started interviewing female filmmakers mm-hmm. and people at the studios to try to figure out what exactly is going on. And is it, does it reach the level of kind of coordinated, uh, gender discrimination? Sure. And if, if, as I think is likely, they conclude that it does, then they're good. There's going to be some force change here.
0: Absolutely. That and the ACLU yeah, making right. it a priority and, and bringing that case. I think that it has to be a combination of, uh, things like that making people people feel like their feet are being foot, put mm-hmm. to the fire this mm-hmm. is an issue they need to prioritize and it also has to come from you know the audience demanding supporting these right. films and showing the studios and the financiers you know this is something we actually want right. um, it seems so clear to us because we think wow I mean the biggest grossing films in the last couple of years have had like female protagonists right. Right. and yet when it comes to female directors, I mean, there's still a long way to go with female protagonists mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we made up like 20% of protagonists in films in the last year. But for directors, the battle is even further behind. There needs to be a real shift in the way we invest in films directed by women. And a lot of that comes from, you know, you being familiar with the independent film world and system, mm-hmm. comes from um, foreign sales. Yeah. It, that's why. It's a, it's a shift that needs to happen in society, not just in the industry.
1: But a lot of these rules that people have thought were held true are being disproven, disproved every every day. I mean, we've had this year straight out of Compton has made ton of a ton of money I abroad. Love that movie and, so much, you know, wasn't it great. And and what I was talking to F Gary Gray, and he was just laughing at the idea that it's always been the kind of the, taken as the rule that black films don't travel. Ha, that was internationally, right, they You hear that all the time. And it's just not the case. Not the if case. If you give people something that, you know, is exactly. quality.
0: Yeah, you know, being a, a producer on this film, I really got an education in how actors are valued by foreign sales companies. Yeah. So, you know, that's what the financiers are, are, are struggling with is how can they create a cast that they can then sell, sell on an bro- international in. stage. And I think it's so funny to see... Actors next to their value and realize, you know, Steven Seagal can get your movie made. It's not. I suggest writing (laughs) an independent film for Steven Seagal because you will get your money (laughs) right. Right. Um, But you know, I was shocked. Even though we had this incredible cast in Meadowland. I mean, we. I will say that it's very difficult to get a female-driven film together without the male lead in place. Right. And we kept hearing, you know, once we have the guy, it'll come together. And I had heard a story, uh, I haven't heard it straight from the horse's mouth, but I did hear the story that uh, when they were making Still Alice, Julianne Moore said, Don't even bother trying to get money until you get the mail lead. Really? And that's Julianne Moore. That's crazy. That's crazy. So, you know. We were very lucky to get Luke Wilson, who had been Reed's first choice. She'd worked with him on Skeleton Skeleton Twins, and he's so phenomenal in that movie, and she knew she wanted him for this role. But we had to go through that rigmarole of, will all these top, top, top top-tier actors consider this role? And I have to say, their agents, I don't really think it was them, their agents often came back to us saying, there's not enough there for him. It's really Olivia's movie. What? And I thought, well, well so what? Right. How many times have we <laughs> taken on roles that are actually the guy's movie, right. whatever that means, but we've been in you know, valuable parts of these stories? Mm-hmm. When did it become about you can only take on the role if it's yours? Right. So I think that's an agent problem. Um, but I, I think in the end, we ended up with the producers who believed in the film, the money we needed to make it, the cast we could only dream of. And I I think that's the the experience of a lot of independent filmmakers is you go through this incredibly difficult, painful process of fighting for your movie and tearing it apart and putting it back together. And in the end, if you stay true to the basic core of your vision, you'll end up with the film you want.
1: And despite the bare-bones budget, the just 22-day shoot, I think, Um, to the extent that, and this may have been not a money issue, but because she wanted to, I don't know, but Reed herself operating the camera. Yes,
0: that was extraordinary. It's something that is just not done. I mean, it's like her and Soderbergh. Right,
1: right, right, exactly. Um, So despite all that and the very tough subject matter, could the shoot itself have been enjoyable for you it
0: was yeah because I I felt such enormous pride every day that we had made it happen you know i was so excited there we were in our first location in this school in Brooklyn and I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe that we were finally there and we could finally work on these scenes in front of the camera and I was so grateful for everyone who came on board I mean we had people like Elizabeth Moss coming in for two days Mm -hmm. and I just you know was so overwhelmed with gratitude that we had someone of her caliber taking on this role. And she did it because she believed in Reed and she believed in our little film. Same thing with, with all our cast. Giovanni mm-hmm. Ribisi is phenomenal right. in this film.
1: Leguizamo. Leguizamo.
0: Yeah. So I walked around every day just buzzing with gratitude. And I think that allowed me to dig my, my heels into my role even more because I felt such support from this project and this cast and this crew that I could go to the challenging emotional places that I needed to go to because there was just such good energy around the whole thing, not to sound, you know, no it's, it, it's, it just really, it, it just had a great vibe and it allowed everyone to focus and to relax and to, um, you know, chew on this material a bit, but I think also, you know, Reed is a very funny, cool woman, and I think her attitude every day on set allowed us to have a bit of levity. You know, we didn't take ourselves too seriously. We knew Mm -hmm. we were making a film about grief, and that's obviously, you know, inherently dramatic. But the vibe on set just was very low-key, just people doing it for free just to be a part of something special.
1: One thing I neglected to mention, I think we have to... Put it out there is that because this this almost got away from you this whole yes. project and um, so I will ask you to explain why and if you think yeah. that the my reason, kid almost ruined it your for kid almost <laughs> and did, did it uh, so so you became pregnant yes right before this was supposed to go into action I like how you say I became you were like the Virgin Mary
0: <laughs> um, yeah it it was. It was, you know, putting together a film, you never know when you're actually going to go. And that schedule keeps kind of slipping around the year. And I was so excited about Madeline, I couldn't wait. Uh, And we kind of had a vague idea. We had an actor we we thought we might be able to hire and and a schedule that was very vague. And it kind of got pushed. And then suddenly, there I was, pregnant, which I was so thrilled about. But I thought, oh, my God we had this tentative start date and I can't do it. I thought, can, can this role be done pregnant? It's too dark. Like we can't, she can't have lost a child and be grieving and be very pregnant. And how will I produce and star? I don't know how I could do it. You know, maybe, maybe I could have pulled it off. I don't know. But I called Reed and I said, I, I have to tell you something. And she, She's like, what? Great. What? You know, she was so excited to move ahead. Here was this directorial debut. Right. You know, I thought I don't want to rob her of this of this experience, this opportunity. And I said, I'm pregnant. I don't know what to do. And she said, oh, my God, that's great. That's-, that's awesome. That's the perfect preparation for this role. You couldn't have done better research. And she agreed to hold the film. And, I mean, that's kind of staggering. That's very nice. She could have. I said, listen, I will stay on as producer. We can hire another actress. We can keep this start date. Let's do it. And she said, no, 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 no one else is Sarah. It can't be done. That's great. So that was enormous personal sacrifice yeah. on her end. Um, but a vote of
1: confidence. I uh, mean, yeah. What, what more could you? Now, I think th- it was at that
0: point that we became real partners. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And do you feel like, I know this is, I'm sure you've had this a million times, but like, would you have played the part differently had you done it before you were pregnant?
0: Sure, yeah, I think so. I, I think any actor can put themselves in someone else's shoes. And I, you know, I think a man could play a woman who lost a child. I believe everyone's able to shift their shape. But I was, I was given insight into the power of a mother's love that drove this character for me. And it allowed me to truly grasp the, the depth of, of, of loss that she felt. And you know, when I fell in love with the script as a person who wasn't a parent, I thought I had a handle on that. It just got so much deeper once I felt that that for myself. Mm-hmm. Once I felt, you know, the love for my son, I thought, oh my God, now I have insight into how brave this woman is and how strong she is. That she's continuing to survive despite this loss, and it allowed me to understand why she has to believe he's alive. Um, Whereas before, I thought, okay, she's lost the plot a bit. She's spinning out. She's unhinged. She's off her meds, so she thinks he's alive. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, no, no. That's survival. Yeah, You can't go on if you know he's gone. Uh, so yeah, I think it definitely it had an effect. But you know, Luke it does not have any kids, and Luke Wilson, mm-hmm. and he was so phenomenal yeah, in that role. Really. He has one scene where he's talking about he's in a group, group therapy oh, yeah. scene, and he's talking about his child and his memory of his child, and it destroys me yeah. every time. And I've seen it like 49 times. <laughs> so
1: oh, that was actors are helpful.
0: capable of putting themselves in, in such, you know, in, in different places. I think it's kind of incredible. And yet you, you do feel lucky when you can feel it for yourself. Yeah. It, 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 um, it's like, it's this, it's this, it's this fun opportunity to use your real life in your art and to channel all these intense feelings you have about your life into your art there's so much catharsis involved it's when acting becomes therapy really
1: wow well last question is just now as people are beginning to discover this movie as a producer as an actor what is it that you hope they will take away from it and also what is the next phase we've talked about so many different things it seems like there's been you could literally break it into chapters of your your work where do you see this going next
0: well, I want to produce again. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that process, so I'm I'm putting together another project. I want to direct, so I've options and wow. material that that's I'm going great. to develop and yeah. direct. I'm really excited, um, and I'm producing some stuff I'm not yeah. in as well. Uh, a show for Comedy Central, I'm excited about, and I'm on this show Vinyl, yes. that it's for HBO, and that by struck of incredible uh, good fortune. Uh, Reed is the DP for. Are you it. So,
1: and this is Scorsese,
0: Scorsese and Terrence Winter and, and, and McJagger. Jesus, are our producers, and it's wow. uh, starring Bobby Cannavale, who is incredible, and an amazing cast. Um, and it's about a record label in 1973 in New York City. Who do you play in the? show? I play a woman named Devon Finestra, who is the wife of Bobby's character, and she's this. A kind of uh, ex Factory girl, frustrated artist who is, when we meet her, has become dissatisfied with life and is um, blowing it all up and starting over. So, wow. a lot of fun. But it's just so it's funny because as we kind of review my history, <laughs> it's like here I am again going back to TV, and yet TV has changed. Right. It's like I've been able to be a witness to bear witness to this shift. Totally. And, and the way material is, is being distributed, and I just I feel really lucky. I feel lucky that I did TV before, so I can truly appreciate How what TV coming. is now. <laughs> like, oh, this is great, guys. Right, right. You should have been around right. in the early 2000s. Uh, That's great. I have my war stories. Well,
1: thank you so much for this, and congratulations. It was really great.
0: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.